you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be continuing our series through the book of Habakkuk, coming to almost an end uh, in Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll be finishing up our series through the book of Habakkuk next week with the end of our text. But we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 3 and going through verse 15 uh, in that series that we've been going through uh, in the book of Habakkuk since the beginning of January. <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 3. If you don't have that, the, the word should be on the screen behind me. It says this. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtains of the 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 land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. When someone talks about biblical theology... Our first thought, likely, is that they really just mean a theology that is based on the Bible. It's a biblical theology. It's a theology that is biblical. But more often, whenever you hear that phrase, what they're actually probably meaning is a specific field, a discipline within biblical studies. Just as in engineering, you would have mechanical engineering. Well, it's a specific field, mechanical, within the larger field of engineering. Biblical theology is a specific field, biblical theology, within the larger field of biblical studies or theology. Uh, And the task of biblical theology, as simply as I can put it, is to try to make Scripture fit together on its own terms. To try to see how the whole book is cohesive. Most often what that looks like is they take a theme of Scripture and they just trace it through everything. What does it look like for uh, the Bible to talk about a king in every book all the way through? How does the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together? They're talking about narratives or authors of Scripture, trying to put all those things together in the language that the Bible already uses. And something that biblical theologians are always trying to come up with, something they're always trying to do, is to try to come up with the one single unifying theme that is throughout all of Scripture. What is the one thing that no matter where you go, no matter what you read, no matter what chapter, book, verse, genre, anything, what is holding all of this together? And one of the best themes that I have heard, maybe the best one that I've ever seen put forward, 
is the theme of God's glory in salvation through judgment. That if you read every book of scripture, what you're ultimately reading about within that book is God's glory in salvation through judgment. And I'm not going to try to defend that theme, that book here today. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. My goal isn't to defend that academically or to give you a lecture on why I think that's a valid way to read all of Scripture. My point in saying that is that I think Habakkuk, as you read it, maybe more than any other book that I've been able to encounter, is so clearly about God's glory and salvation through judgment. And I think particularly our text this morning, this prayer of Habakkuk in chapter 3, where it's his final response to everything that God has said. He's been having a conversation between him and God back and forth. And now he's come to the conclusion that this is how he ultimately is responding to God with this prayer, this really song as we saw last week. That's why it's interrupted by those selahs in the middle. What he's talking about here in this text is God's glory in salvation through judgment. Today we see Habakkuk's prayer to God about God's glory in what God is doing, in how God is doing that, and in why God is doing what he's doing. So we're going to see those three aspects of God's glory in our text today. Three aspects of the glory of God. And the first aspect of God's glory that we see in our text this morning is that God's glory is seen in what he does. We can see God's glory in what he does in the first few verses, verses 3 through 7. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. His rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. These verses pick up and continue the prayer song of praise that Habakkuk began last week in the beginning of chapter 3. He was humbly asking God to keep being God as the prophet conformed himself to God's reality and as he ultimately rested in gospel hope. Now... Habakkuk is moving into the portion where he actually is praising God directly for what God is doing. And the first thing he praises God for is for showing up. At the beginning of verse 3, he says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. God is coming in this verse. He is arriving in this verse. He is going somewhere in this verse, leaving somewhere and arriving somewhere else. And when you look at the geography there from Teman and Mount Paran, that direction, that general route that God is following in that uh, verse here, roughly follows the path of God's people as they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, received the law of God at Mount Sinai, and worked in their wilderness to their way to the promised land. What God is doing here is what Habakkuk is hitting on, that just as God delivered them in the Exodus, he is going to deliver them again from the Babylonians that are coming, which we've seen throughout the book of Habakkuk. This connection, this direction has already been made in the Song of Moses directly in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. It says this, He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. 
He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So what Habakkuk's doing in these first verses is praising God for showing up, for being with his people. He saved them in the Exodus. He gave them the law. He led them in the desert. He gave them the promised land. And when God shows up, those are the kinds of things that he does for his people. So Habakkuk right now, staring down the barrel of the Chaldeans coming against the nation of Judah, is referring back to the time when God has saved them in the past as a promise that he is going to do so again. He's referring back to God's work in the past to praise him for what he's about to do in the present. But even more specifically, if you look at what he's talking about, he could have chosen any place along that route to name, and yet he chose places directly after Sinai. Directly after God had given them the law. So if you think more specifically about what Habakkuk is praising God for here. When God saved them in the wilderness, that was worthy of praise. But the prophet Habakkuk is referring to times, places, specifically after Sinai. After the giving of the law. Using those places as his coming forth for the basis of praise. So in God shining forth from Mount Paran. It's referring back to the whole journey of the Exodus generally, but maybe the giving of the law even more specifically. God's coming that Habakkuk is praising him for is actually focused on God's coming with his law. God's coming with his rules, with his commandments, with his justice. It's the justice of God that gets the focus here in Habakkuk's song. He is not only the God who shows up, but the God who shows up in or with righteous justice. So when we read that in the context of everything that we've already seen in the book of Habakkuk, it looks like all of Habakkuk's questions, all of Habakkuk's misgivings about God and his justice are gone. He's no longer wondering. He's no longer asking, how can a just God do this? He is simply saying the just God is going to be just. Just as he was then, he is still now. He's no longer wondering whether God is just or how God could be just. He's simply praising him for being the God who in justice will show up to save his people. That is what God does. That's why God should be glorified. But when he does this, Habakkuk's clear that God is only using an ounce of his own power. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Though his splendor is covering the heavens, though the earth is full of his praises, though his brightness is like light itself with rays flashing from his clenched fist, even then his power is still veiled. What Habakkuk's trying to do, the imagery he's trying to give us, is trying to get across to us the majesty of God with the greatest, the, the biggest imagery that he possibly can. And when you read the rest of chapter 3, he's doing this throughout the entire song, all of these verses. And yet, even as he does that, as he's pushed to the limits of the very language that he has, he has to also include this little note, this little phrase at the end of verse 4. And there he veiled his power. 
he has to include that even as he's explaining the magnificent works of God, even as God's glory is revealed against all the earth, all the cosmos, all of the evil that he is coming against in his justice, that even this still is not the fullness of the power of God. It's merely a veil. It's only a taste of who he actually is. So every person in this room, every single one of us, the God that you have pictured in your head is too small. He is bigger than that. He is better than that. He is more majestic. He is more powerful than you think he is, than you could even imagine him to be. He is more loving, more merciful than you think he is. He is more just. He is more good than you imagine him to be. He is simply more than you are capable of conceiving. In fact, whenever Anselm was trying to define who God was, as he was trying to prove that God exists, his definition, what he said, this is who and what God is. He said this. He said, he is the being than which no greater being can be conceived. The one who defies every possible definition we could have. Every possible limit our language could try to put on his power. The word infinite is not enough to say who and what God is. The being than which no greater being can be conceived. You may have been a Christian for 90 years. You may have studied your Bible every single day. And you don't have a handle on how great he is. You might have all the doctorates a man can earn. You might read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew every morning. You might lecture on theology in your spare time. You might teach the Bible every afternoon before writing textbooks on Christianity in every evening. And you are not even in the preschool of God's knowledge. He is bigger and better, more majestic, more powerful, more holy, more of everything than you are capable of imagining him to be. So what would our lives look like if we came to terms with that fact? If we understood even just the extent to which we don't know or esteem him correctly. Do you think we would ignore him as often as we do? Would we neglect his word as often as we do? Would we just ghost him? Just fail to speak to him as often as we do? Do you think we would neglect the gathering of his church, of his bride, his people who he loves as easily as we tend to? When we fail to do and be the people we should be. When we fail to be the people we are called to be. I think that that's rarely because we don't know what to do. I think it's more often because we don't remember how to think correctly. The only reason I don't read my Bible is because I forget who wrote it. The only reason I don't pray is because I forget who I'm talking to. If we have a a real right concept of who God is, that even in these moments, all of this awesome power, he is still veiling his power. I think that's going to have a drastic impact in who we are and how we behave, how we live. It's a problem of the affection. If God is God, then that changes 
everything. All he does, all we see him do, that's merely a glimpse of his true power. And if that's true, and it is, then it makes these next verses take on an even greater weight, don't they? Verse 5, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. As Habakkuk is praising God for what he does, for showing up, for using merely an ounce of his power, he's also praising him for performing signs and wonders, great and terrible. Because he goes out in justice, God delivers that justice through his judgment against all who deserve it. Pestilence before him, plague behind him. The one in his path has no chance to stand. He measures the earth because it belongs to him. He surveys his own territory. He shakes the greatest of nations. He scatters the highest of mountains. He brings down every hill in his path. Though that mountain looks like it's going to be there for forever, the ways of God, his power, those are the everlasting ways. What are the tents of Kushan and Midian when he arrives? How could they possibly stand? Those places, those references, they're made specifically to times when God delivered his people in the book of Judges. So again, we're still seeing that God is, or that Habakkuk is following the path of God, leading his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, all the way through into the wilderness, to the promised land, through the conquest, to the point where they actually possess those things that he has already promised them that they would have. Through the desert, into the land, continuing through to their possession of that land. Kushan Rishathaim was a place there. It was another nation that was sent by God to conquer the people because of their sin in Judges 3. So in much the same way that he is now sending the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to judge the nation of Judah for their sin. Habakkuk's pointing back to the past where, yes, this isn't new. God's done this before. And he saw us through that even as he did it. Midian was overthrown later in Judges by Gideon. Because of the great oppression of the Israelites. So it's not only that God can use an outside nation to come in and judge his people. But he also delivers them from the oppression from that outside force in his justice. Habakkuk is counting on the actions of God in the past to give him hope and future in the midst of everything that God is about to do within the nation of Judah. It's a reminder not only that God saves and acts for the deliverance of his people. But he does so even after judging them. By the use of a foreign nation. He does so even in the face of great affliction. Great oppression. Just as he has before. He will again. So Habakkuk has spent these first verses praising God for what he does. But now he begins to transition to praising God with an emphasis on how God does what he does. That's the second aspect of God's glory we see in our text. God's glory in how he does what he does. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. 
You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Here we see God going out to battle against a mighty enemy. The Kushan that was referenced in verse 7 is known for being a region with two primary rivers. So as God is defeating these nations, his victory is so complete that if you were an impartial third party looking at it, you would think, what does God have against those rivers? His destruction was so complete. He obliterated that land so much that when you look at it, you think, wow, he must have something against the rivers. Similar to when a baseball player hits a long home run, he just cranks it. And somebody says, boy, what did that ball do to him? That's what Habakkuk's asking about the rivers here. That God's justice as it goes forth in judgment is so complete that we might ask, boy, what did those rivers ever do to him? That's how complete his judgment was against this land, against these people. But there's a subtle shift here in verse 8. First, it goes from referencing God in the first seven verses to speaking to God through the end of today's passage. It was talking about him in the third person. Now it's talking to him. But with that, you can also see that God's warfare seems to become more personal as the the personal nature of the addressing in the passage shifts, as that becomes more intimate. So does it seem like his judgment becomes more intimate and personal. He's going against all the nations. He's using cosmic power, as we'll see in these verses. But the warfare itself seems to zoom in on a more granular level. When you, God, rode on your horse, on your chariot of salvation, we see God unstripping a bow, calling for many arrows. And I'm no hunter. I won't claim to be one. But as far as I can tell... Arrows are like one-shot weapons, right? You have one target with that one arrow. You shoot it at that target, and you either hit or you miss. It's not a ranged weapon. It's not anything that you can really hit and think, like, well, I got close enough. It'll be fine. It's not a grenade. You have an arrow. You either hit it or you didn't. One shot, one target. So God must have specific and personal targets when he is using these arrows. And that's important because we've been talking to this point about God battling with nations. About him coming against a people, against a class of people for a specific reason. But when you get to the point of talking about arrows, that arrow has a single, a personal, a specific target here. It's like there's a name on that arrow as God goes out in his justice. So he's not merely warring against a people in the abstract, against the wicked as a concept. He is coming against specific sinners for their specific sins in these verses. Those woes that we saw in chapter 2, those are warnings to you in particular, whoever you are. Jesus said whoever is not against him is for him. So those are really your only two options. 
Either you have repented of your sins and believed. Either you are placing your faith in Christ for your salvation. Or you're against him. And as God is enacting his plans for justice and salvation. He is doing that by warring with the warrior who is against him. And he has all weapons at his disposal. Look at verse 9. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. So here we're back to a focus on the power and might of God by seeing the weapons that he uses in his battle against the warrior. He uses those things that should be unusable. When the time came to split the earth as he pleased, he used rivers to do that. He used waters so mighty that they made the mountains writhe. They made the mountains flee their presence. The abyss of the deep waters gave forth all it had. All that water rose and crashed against the land as if its hands were reaching out in the attack. As if it were lifting its hands on high against the mountain. The most powerful and destructive forces in nature are simply tools in the hands of God to enact his plans and his purposes. When you read this, there's even a, a hint of worship in those tools, right? The deeps are crying out. They're giving their voice at the command of God. Just like the stones would cry out if God were lacking worshipers. The waters, they lift their hands on high before him. They're yielding to his, desi- his desires. He's commanding the things that no one else could possibly command. And this imagery is once again pointing back to the Exodus, I think. Here are the similarities between these verses in Habakkuk and these verses in Psalm chapter 77 which are talking directly about the Exodus. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock By the hand of Moses and Aaron. Parting the Red Sea. Sending it crashing down on all Pharaoh's army. That could have been done by no one. But the covenant God of Israel. The creator God. But he didn't stop there. Verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. He doesn't just use the unusable earthly elements in his plans. He also controls all of the cosmos in his power. Not only the earth, but the sun, the moon are at his command. There's a clear and obvious reference here that Habakkuk is making back to Joshua 10. When God made the sun and moon stop in their place for a whole day while Israel routed their enemies before God. So see, we're still seeing that same progression, right? Out of Egypt, into the wilderness, after the law, into the promised land, through the conquest. 
How God fought on their behalf to save them and to give them his good plans, his inheritance. Every nation, every people who were in Israel's way, God fought and defeated to accomplish his purposes. And for a nation who is staring down the barrel of horrific suffering, of terrible persecution, for a people who were about to be conquered by ruthless rulers, for a people who were about to be taken away into exile and they knew it, Think about how encouraging it must have been to be reminded of both the times that God had intervened on their behalf in the past and how he had done it every time. Every time that they needed him, he had always been there. Every time they had cried out, he had always heard. He came to them in Egypt. He raised up Moses. He brought his people out. He defeated the greatest army in the world. He gave them a law. He was with them in the wilderness. He brought them to the land that he had promised them. And then when they finally entered the land, he defeated every king and every nation in their way. He gave them a place and an inheritance. He made them a people. He did all of those things for his people. And how he did those things is by hearing their cries. By sending the plagues and pestilence against Pharaoh, their enemies. By parting the Red Sea. He brought them to a mountain with lightning and thunder. His just law had so much glory that Moses' face shined like the sun. He led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He had bread fall from the heavens so that they would never be hungry. He brought down city walls with trumpets. He stopped rivers so that they could pass. He made the sun and the moon stand still in the sky. That's how he did all he did. And if you're facing what they were facing, how great a comfort it must have been to be reminded of those things. Not just all the ways that he had actually saved you in the past, but the particular glory in those ways. Not only does God have a special love and plan for his people, but he will do mighty and wonderful things to accomplish it. And those facts are still true, even in the face of the coming Chaldeans. It's still true even after all of Israel's wandering. It's still true even wherever they end up in exile. And it's still true for us today, his church. We are his people. And we can face every day knowing that this is the same God that we love and serve. So no matter what you're facing, No matter how bleak it may seem, God not only acts for your good and his glory, but he tends to act in a miraculous way that we would never be able to imagine. He tends to move in that way out of love for his people. And the most miraculous way, the clearest example of him acting for your good and his glory is the cross of Jesus Christ. If you ever have doubt that he loves you, All you have to do is look at the cross. If you ever have doubt that he has a plan for your good, all you have to do is look at the cross. Christ, the sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This, my ballast of assurance. See his love forever proved. So I will hold fast to the anchor. Because it shall never be removed. 
God is glorious not only in what he does, but he is glorious in how he does it. And finally, today, we can see in these verses that he is also glorious in why he does what he does. That's the third aspect of God's glory that we see in our text. God's glory in why he does those things. Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk tells us right there, at the beginning of verse 13, why God is displaying all this power and might. Why he's warring against these other nations and peoples. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. All that God is doing. He is doing so that his people might be saved. Even the hard stuff. Even the judgment. Even the Babylonians coming to conquer them. Before then, them being overthrown by God's justice. All that is ultimately going to result in the salvation of God's people. What did he do? He went out in all the ways that we've seen. Why did he do it? For the salvation of his people. And there's a point there that we have to address, I think, quickly. There are men, there are pastors, theologians that I love and respect... The people I tend to prefer listening to who see God's glory, his zeal for his own glory as the driving force of everything that he does. And I think that that's right. That's correct. That's why our purpose here at Pleasant Grove, the, the reason we exist is to glorify God and enjoy him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. All things exist for this purpose. His own glory is the driving force of everything that happens. Absolutely, that's true. But I think sometimes in light of that fact, the the people that I like to listen to, we get nervous when we hear someone say what I said before. That God is doing all that he's doing. His purpose in all that he is doing in this text is for the salvation of his people. They'll say, no, no, no. His purpose can't be to save his people. His purpose is to glorify himself. To say anything else is to to put ourselves at the center. That's man-centered thought. That's man-centered theology. It puts us as the focus of all things rather than him. In fact, he could even make it to where God has to save us. And we know that God doesn't have to do anything. So no, no, no. It's about his glory. It's not about our salvation. And they say those things as if his glory and our salvation are opposed to each other. How has God chosen to glorify himself? How does he get that glory that he deserves? By saving us. That's how he's shown to be so glorious. That's how he receives glory from his worshipers. He is absolutely doing all things for his own glory. And the all things that he is doing, they focus primarily on saving those he loves and reconciling them to himself. It's not God's glory or salvation. It's God's glory in salvation. Just as we said at the beginning. 
And when we get that, when we understand that, what about our lives doesn't change? If the God who is so glorious and so great and so powerful and so mighty has chosen to save sinners like you and to make that his primary focus as he works in creation, then it sounds like sinners like you being saved should be our utmost priority, right? Therefore, you right now, today, repent and believe. Be saved. Place your full faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, the God-man. The one who loved you. Who paid the penalty for your sins by dying on the cross in your place. The one who gave you the chance at new life through his resurrection. You, right now, today, bring him the glory he is due with every single breath that you take. Make him the central theme and focus of every aspect of your life. Being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Knowing that you aren't earning anything he's given you. You're merely responding rightly to his gift of grace. And then once you've done that, for everyone else who isn't in this room, who didn't just hear those words, our highest priority isn't to feed and clothe them, though that's important and we should do that. It's not to make sure that the right political party is in office, though we don't stop being Christians when we step into the voting booth. It's not even to make sure that they show up in this room in Pleasant Grove Baptist Church, though we'd love to have them and they're more than welcome to come in and join us. Our highest priority with every non-believer is that they would be saved as we were. As God has ordained and planned for his own glory. We want them to come to know this God. To join that God's church. To become his disciples just like we have. We glorify God and enjoy him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we should do. Because it's why God is doing what he's doing. And as sweet and nice as it would be to end our text there today, to pray, to go eat slim chickens and be done. That's not the end of this passage. You see, saving his people is not the only reason why God does what he does, though it is the primary reason. Still in verse 13. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. Who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses. The surging of mighty waters. You see God also reveals his own glory. By crushing the wicked. And we're still getting this same exodus imagery here. Particularly in verse 15, where God tramples down the sea. He crushes the wicked with the surging of mighty waters. As glorious as God is, as much glory as he reveals and receives in the salvation of his people, his glory is also shown in delivering his justice against the wicked. And apart from the cross of Christ, the wicked is every person in this room. Myself included. Myself first and foremost. You see, Habakkuk has been a book about despair and hope. About good and evil. But the connective tissue bringing everything together this whole time has been God's justice. 
it was seemingly violated with no repercussions by the Israelites, which caused Habakkuk to cry out. It was seemingly violated more so by the conquering Chaldeans, which caused Habakkuk to cry out. It's even seemingly violated by the salvation of wicked people, by the salvation of people who are only righteous by faith. But in the end, ultimately, those whom he calls wicked, which is everyone who hasn't believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, they will receive his full and right justice levied against them. His glory is shown in salvation through judgment. That's what he does. It's how he does it. And it's why he does it. So I hope today we'll respond rightly to that glory. We'll respond in repentance and belief. We'll be those who are counted righteous by faith, not those who are counted wicked and are awaiting his justice and judgment. Let us thank God this morning for giving us the book of Habakkuk, which tells us all of these things so clearly. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to read your word, to hear you speak with your people. Help us to be a people who understand the greatness of your glory. Who even understand how incapable we are of fully understanding the greatness of your glory. Help for us to be a people who not only know you and love you and worship you for what you do, but also for how you do it. Help us to reflect your nature in our lives, in our actions. And help for us to conform our lives to the purpose for which you did all these things. Help for us to be a people who are saved, but then who also hope to bring everyone with us in that same salvation. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.